Welcome to Nudge Talk Asia, behavioral science insights that improve business and lives. Here's your host, Paolo Mercado. Welcome back to Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting, bringing you behavioral insights that improve business and lives. I'm Paolo Mercado, Vice President of Behavioral Science at Ogilvy Consulting. For the past 10 years, Ogilvy's behavioral science practice has proven time and again that indeed behavioral insights can lead to surprising business growth. Today, I'm very excited that we are speaking with Dane Smith, the behavioral and brand strategist at Ogilvy Australia. Dane is joining us to talk all about brand value perception and how behavioral science can generate surprising sales uplift through behavioral nudges. So welcome, Dane, and thank you for joining us. No, it's very good to be here. Great that you're, you're joining us this evening. You have a behavioral science background. You're a behavioral scientist. So can you tell us how did a behavioral scientist end up joining and working for an ad agency in Australia? I think it's a fantastic question, Paolo, and it's one I don't necessarily have a good answer for. And that's because I don't know how the hell I got here. <laughs> the long story is that, look, I graduated like a lot of psych grads looking for what the next big step was. And the pathways are all kind of the same. There's a clinical pathway, uh, there's a neuro pathway, and there's an organizational one. But the bit that I fell in love with at uni was really about human decision making, you know, why it is that people make certain decisions, mm. all of the little things which influence our decisions. I loved the freakiness of, of looking at illusions and, and knowing sort of what kind of influence that has over your behavior. And I just didn't really know what that was. But then I sort of had a friend of a friend who said, that sounds a lot like what a strategist or a planner does at an ad agency. So that was a mind-blowing thing for someone to share with me. I didn't, I didn't even know what a planner was. And look, I naively then just went knocking on a lot of doors and said, I've got this thing that I think you'd like to hear about. And unfortunately, the opportunities just w weren't really there. So Ogilvy, you know, started up the behavioral science practice back in, what was it, 20, 2012? Back in 2012, and somebody sent me a link uh, with Sam Tatum saying, look at look at this guy. This interesting guy was an organizational psych, and he's doing a lot of stuff in advertising. So that's where I started, and I think it's about eight or nine years down the track, and I haven't looked back. Wow. So you, you practically joined the behavioral science practice of Ogilvy from almost the very beginning. From day dot, yep. I've seen it go through many different iterations, and yeah, it's definitely in its, its best place now. Yeah, so it's a, a great. I'd like to get your views on, on how behavioral science or what you like to call behavioral lenses, how this can help reframe value perception for brands, products, and even promotions. But perhaps before we kick off on that subject matter of value, perhaps I think it's important for us to start with what value means from a behavioral science point of view. Could you share some, some of your thoughts on that, Dane? I can do. I can do. Look, value, it's an extremely complicated, you know, what, what a typical behavioral scientist answer, right? It's what an extremely complicated thing value is. And I, I think to understand value, you kind of have to understand what our traditional assumptions around value are. So if you were to speak to an economist and not me on the phone right now, so maybe that's your next guest on the podcast is if you speak to an economist, they'd, they'd probably use words like the expected utility or expected marginal utility. So in other words, how much benefit would I be able to squeeze out of a particular uh, product or a service minus how much am I going to have to pay for the thing, right? So whatever you're left with is, is the value. Even though this is kind of the working assumption that a lot of us have about what value is, it's not necessarily the best definition. It's a contentious definition. I think it's contentious because of two things, right? So the first part is it kind of suggests that value is based on something objectively true, that you can just go out and you can measure value, whether that's of a product or 
let's say it's the car, it's the car that's sitting in your driveway. You can measure the width, you can measure the height of it, you can look at how much gas is left in the tank, and then you can also figure out exactly how much value it has, right? So there's something a little bit a little bit off and a little bit fishy about that. The second part of that coin, and I think what's the bigger contention, is about what it suggests, or, or rather where it suggests that value lies. It suggests that value is out there. It's out there in the physical world, and it plays by the rules of physical things. So, you know, things which are bigger, things which are made of uh, more expensive materials, things which have power steering. Those are the things which are really valuable rather than things which are being, you know, whimsically made up in our minds on the fly based on, on rather arbitrary factors. A good illustrative example would be two cars. You know, you've got one car that in the eyes of an economist, it's, it's worth $40,000. The other one's worth $140,000. What's the difference? The answer to that from an economist lens would be it's $100,000 worth of value or enjoyment units. So it's a precise measure of, of how much value you're getting rather than it probably being the byproduct of a really good advertising campaign or the fact that it was being driven by Daniel Craig in the last Bond movie. So there's something a bit fishy about all these definitions. And I'd say that that's probably the long way of getting to the actual answer, which you were looking for is, you know, what is it that behavioral science has to say about value? So Dane, so just picking up from what you said, that people perceive value to be something that is external, that's something that can be very objective, but oftentimes it's not, that there's a, there's a great deal of let's say, perception or brand building around it. But then there are other people who say, isn't value equated to price? You know, isn't price essentially the signal of the objective value of an object? So uh, could you care to comment on that? Well, I think probably the best segue from there is to look at a, a particular category where price doesn't act as a reliable signal of quality or value. And if you could probably see where I'm going with this, it'd be wine. The category of wine and wine consumption is, is extremely loopy in the way that all of these seemingly arbitrary psychological factors completely flip the equation. And so price is actually a signal of quality as much as it is a barrier or an indication of whether or not something's cheaper. So I, th I think if, if we're talking about wine for just a second, wine is probably the one that just blows the top off a lot of economic, you know, ec economic points of view around marginal utility and expected utility. I don't know. Do you, do you remember last year? I think it was last year's Nudge Talk where Joe Fatterini, who was the resident, he's the British wine expert, sort of got up on stage and talked about all the, the different contextual factors which influence our value perceptions in the world of wine. And so if wine is poured out of a heavier bottle rather than a light bottle, it, it makes us feel like it's more expensive. And then if you have, you know, the sommelier who turns around and he twirls his mustache and he says, that was an excellent choice. You obviously know a lot about wine. That makes you feel even better about the value that you're getting out of the wine. So all of these things that, that kind of don't equate to any rational conception of how much the product is worth or the labor that went into actually producing that bottle. Again, all these sort of traditional assumptions about what makes something valuable. We get the sense, I, I think you said it before, is perception of value is, is the operative here. You're not, we're not talking about value as an intrinsic sort of measure of quality, we're talking about a psychological process. What are the things that impact the perception of value? Going back to the wine example, there are things which seem rather loopy to a, to a rational ear, but they, you know, they make a lot of good sense if you're approaching it like an evolutionary psychologist um, or a behavioral economist. So bottles which look more expensive, branding which looks better, all of these things act as signal of, of something's quality or worth. I think if, if you just take a broader lens of, of behavioral science and, you know, our understanding of how the mind works now, we know that we have these reliable, predictable shortcuts called heuristics that we make that, that tell us a lot based on the limited information we have. 
it's the same thing with value in, in much the same way that our decision-making day-to-day gets influenced by these heuristics. Our perceptions of value are just as amenable to these little nudges or these little heuristics. So yeah, wine is probably my, my favorite example there. So you were talking about heuristics and behavioral lenses that can uplift the value perception of a brand or a product. So could you give some examples of, of these behavioral lenses that, that actually have an effect on brand perception? So I can I can give a couple of examples from the work that we've done over the last few years. Before I go into that, I might just introduce what this concept is. So the idea that you can apply a lens over value or you could present the same rational claim in, in different ways and that can affect people's value perceptions for better or worse, that's called framing. Framing effects was something that was first suggested, I think, back in, in late 70s, early 80s by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And what they found, which I, I guess probably sounds quite intuitive to us now, but at the time it was it was a small revolution It won them the Nobel Prize, you know, is that the same bit of information or the same choice presented in different ways can create very different perceptions of, of value and very different different judgments of value. So the details which shouldn't technically matter, matter. And that goes back to that point that you had on, you know, the, the heuristics which matter. Mm. So if you're shopping in a grocery store aisle and you pick up a butter that says it's, you know, 5% full of fat, probably doesn't make you feel very good. And it's sitting alongside exactly the same claim reframed as 95% fat free. Mm. It's exactly the same claim, but the way in which you frame that choice made all the difference to your perceptions of value. And it's not just the wording of a choice, which is is what framing is all about, but also the alternative choices which you present alongside the thing you're you're trying to talk about. So if you've been to the movies recently, I don't know if you have been out to go see the new Top Gun. Mm, no, I haven't. You definitely should. It was probably the best action movie I've I've seen in a while. But you know, you, you would notice that there are a ton of different choices when it comes time to the type of you know, the size of the popcorn that you want. You have at least three different sizes of popcorn. But it always it has you know, it hasn't always been that way. And I think you can cast your mind to a situation where you only have two different types of popcorn. You've got the small and you've got the large. And you're trying to get people to make judgments about what they find uh, to be most valuable. And in the context of a small versus a large it's kind of hard to see the value in the large. It feels excessive, both in terms of lots of calories, potentially, but also it's an unnecessary expense. But if you introduce a jumbo deluxe Megatron size that that you couldn't possibly eat in one sitting, then all of a sudden the large feels like the best way to shop value at the movies. That's essentially the concept of framing and the way that different heuristics come into play. And if we go back to the equation of value, which is you know that traditional model of how much do I get minus how much do I pay, you can start framing the value in, in a product in different ways that make it feel like you're getting more for less. You know, you asked me when we've, you know, what types of heuristics you can use when we've used them. I think probably one of the clearest examples for us goes goes back to this this idea of loss aversion, which was one of the the biggest coups and biggest revolutions in the way we think about framing a value. So the finding was that we are a lot more sensitive to something which is framed as a loss, something which we might lose versus if the exact same thing is framed as a gain. So I don't know if you heard of the study about university students and whether or not they'd register for early class, early registration. I believe what they found was was 93% of students were willing to register for a class early if it was to avoid receiving a late penalty fee versus 67% who were willing to register early when they believe that they were just gaining an early bird discount. The feeling that we're reducing our losses is an incredibly powerful way of, of influencing value perception. And it's something that we've used in a previous campaign. And it was one for the Queensland government, and this goes back a few years. The government approached Ogilvy with the challenge of helping them clean up Australia's most littered state. 
um, which I shouldn't say which one it was, but it was Queensland. The government, like other parts of the world, were rolling out what's called the container refund scheme, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. It's where you trade in your bottles and your cans in exchange for a small financial incentive. They had an issue which you, you can imagine has a lot to do with perceived value exchange. We had a population of people living in Queensland with a fairly low base rate of you know, willingness to recycle. And so the government knew for this to work, they needed a big enough incentive to get citizens starting to change their habits from something which was comfortable and familiar into something which was a bit of a pain in the butt. So they would have to start collecting all their plastic waste throughout the week. They would need to store it somewhere in their house and they would need to get up and personally transport it to a depot. And all they had to offer really was 10 cents per bottle. So that's $100 for a thousand bottles, or I think it works out to be something like 30 kilograms of smelly plastic waste sitting inside your house. How do you make that seem worth the 10 cents? If that was our challenge, we set about looking at exactly the question that you asked is, you know, what are the right heuristics or what are the right ways to frame the value in an offer to make it feel worthwhile? So rather than kind of making that an assumption, you know, we didn't want to go out there assuming that one thing was going to be the most valuable to people. We tested a number of different messages on Facebook, you know, and each one of them was using a different frame of value that we had uncovered through behavioral research. And each one was essentially taking the same 10 cent incentive. So going back to the, you know, 95% fat free versus the 5% full of fat, same exact incentive, just framed in different ways to make it feel more or less valuable alongside a simple control message, which was just, you can now trade in your bottles for 10 cents. We had one which was based on this idea of loss aversion, right? So we had lots of different conditions. I think one of them was trying to position it as, you know, it's not money for you, it's money for someone who needs it. Or it was an urgent buyback scheme of raw, precious materials. And I think we had one which was a thank you to Queensland's best recyclers. We had this other idea around loss aversion. So rather than you can earn 10 cents for every bottle, we offered a bit of a warning. We said, you need to be careful now. What you're doing every week is you're throwing away the hard-earned cash that you're collecting. You're just throwing it away in the bin. you know. And so that, by large, by a significant degree, was the highest performing condition on our Facebook message testing. And so that gave us the clue that this might be the best way to position the value in the exchange. And so that became the hero message of the campaign. Don't throw away the cash that's in your containers for your own sake. Please don't do it. Wow, that, that's really fascinating, Dane. But you also raised something that was actually a follow-up question of mine, which is how do you actually choose the right behavioral lens or the right uh, behavioral frame to be able to create an impact? And then you spoke about that actually you don't just choose one, you actually test several of these. And then you mentioned testing them on Facebook as one, let's say, avenue of testing. So could you describe that process a bit more? Yeah. Well, look, we came up with a, a bit of a agile testing methodology, which was around going to the literature, uncovering different frames of value or sort of principles of value, which might be most relevant to a specific offer. We would turn those into kind of creative propositions and would sit around in a room with our creative teams and blow those out into lots and lots of different propositions. So in some of the processes that we've gone through, you know, we'd start with 13 or, or 15 different principles and would end up with 90 different messages or 90 different propositions. At which point it's really just a budget conversation of how many messages can you afford to test in a way that's still going to be statistically significant. So the main thing we did realize, though, is you really don't know what's going to be the top performing condition. And we like to play a little bit of a game every time we're going to do these, this sort of value testing, which is, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Everybody has to place a bet on which of the value conditions they think is going to be the best performing 
And often it's just not the one that you expect. So in the case of container, the container exchange program, it was loss aversion. And while that makes a lot of good sense, we also had no reason to believe that it was going to be the best performing condition. Right. So you weren't actually trying to push one particular behavioral lens. You were, if I were to understand the way you approached it, is that when you put all of these different approaches that were inspired by these behavioral science literature, you didn't really have any strong bets or recommendations coming in. No, I mean, we're, we're human at the end of the day, and we all are have our own assumptions about what we think is going to work the best. And so, for example, loss aversion is, is one that we often bank on, but often it's not the one that pulls its weight. And it's things which are a bit weirder and a little bit more unusual. So to give you another example, maybe we had a similar value exchange problem with, with KFC. We had an, a particular offer which they wanted us to sell and to frame up differently, which was their $1 chips or $1 French fries offer. So it's a limited time offer. It's worth you know $1 for a packet of chips. There's obvious value housed within that. It's good bang for buck. And that had been effective for a long time, but that was fast becoming par for course. And that was becoming a, a normal sized offer in the fast food industry. So they wanted to know, same exact starting premise as the container refund scheme, what's the most relevant way to frame the value within the same product and price to make it sort sort of sing. So same process, went back to the drawing board, came up with 18 different principles that we thought were the most relevant. That turned into 90 different messages. We whittled that down to, I think it was five experimental conditions in one control. The control was just our chips are now available for a dollar. And that's French fries. I forget that that's not the same everywhere, not potato chips. And what we found is, is, you know, we did have loss aversion. We did have scarcity. We had all these things that you would expect to work. But the thing which worked the hardest was probably the strangest condition we put into the mix, right? I think it outperformed the loss aversion condition by 40% in terms of engagement. And it suggested very little about how much you were going to pay and about the price point or how many chips you were going to get. Instead, it focused on the kind of specialness of the deal or the feeling of specialness. And we, we stole a bit of this logic from... The Campbell Soup experiment, which was run a bunch of years ago. And the, the Campbell Soup example, they just referenced the maximum number of cans of soup you were allowed to buy in the supermarket. That was part of the deal. And what that did is that signaled to consumers that the deal is so good that they had to put a physical limit or cap on the deal to stop people from gaming it. So we applied that exact principle. In this case, we had a limit of four packets of French fries per customer and per transaction. And that's totally not something we made up. That was one of the terms and conditions that was buried deep down. And we put it into testing with no belief that it would necessarily pull its weight compared to the other conditions. And it won by 40%. And that became our lead message. So our chips now a dollar, but we're really, really sorry. You can only have four. And my understanding also of the case study is that it didn't only win in pretest; it actually worked in in-market application. Yeah. So, I mean, the golden standard of where you go with that is you wouldn't just stop the testing once you've got a, a read on social engagement. You actually have a closed environment in which to test how people react naturalistically to the offer. So we did have a test market in South Australia, and we actually saw an 87% increase in transactions that included four packets of chips and then a 40% increase in overall chip sales compared to the rest of the market. So we had that message running in South Australia and everyone else saw that kind of control message of our chips are now for a dollar. So essentially, when you told people the maximum that they could get, when you gave them a limit, they actually purchased to the limit. Yep. So that, you know, that's the principle of anchoring yeah. at play. People make these crazy decisions about value that are based on um, arbitrary reference points. Yes. One of the things you mentioned also reminded me of something I saw that you wrote a couple of years ago when you said that 
you know, the, the, the $1 fries or the $1 chips offer was there for a long time. It was becoming normal and expected for people. And you wrote this article, which is titled as If You're Fitting In, You're Failing. And um, it was on the dangers of a brand becoming too familiar and expected for customers. So could you tell us more about that and how behavioral science can help brands stand out from the crowd in a meaningful way? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think we all, we know that the pursuit in the name of the game is, is finding distinctive, less, less traveled paths, you know, in which to frame our products and experience and brands. But we often just fall back on kind of the same, the same sorts of ways of describing the power of our car, the amount of horsepower, the places where it could take you. I think it goes back to that basic assumption about, you know, what value is. And it's, it's that it's got to do more with the number of features or the size of the price I think where behavioral science comes in goes back to the point around testing and testing almost as a religion, right? So to get the courage to start going out with a message that's as crazy and loopy as, you know, we're going to tell people about an inherent flaw in the product. We're going to tell them that we've only got four packets of chips per customer, so we, we really don't want you to go overboard that's not something that we would normally go out and say. It's probably something that would sit around and we would think would be cool if we could do it, but we may never work up the courage and the appetite to actually put it into market. So I think where behavioral science comes into play is it actually gives you an excuse to, to try things which, which are a little bit weird. And if they work, it gives you an even better excuse to go out and, and, and talk about it. So Dane, let me reference something in that same article where you wrote that or where you encourage brands to embrace some quirkiness and so, or some randomness in their approach so that they don't become invisible to consumers. But at the same time, as marketers, we are told that we have to be consistent and we have to build a very consistent brand image over time so that we can win over consumer trust. So how do you resolve that? How do you balance the need for consistency to build brand trust and at the same time, randomness to build saliency for the brand? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. You know, I'm, I'm not going to fly in the face of the, the Byron Sharp model of marketing. I think brand availability through consistent, ruthlessly consistent, you know, brand assets. I think that's that's still a big part of the appeal and the familiarity and the trust that you need to build for your brand. But if you're focused on the R&D function of a department, how, how are you going to keep a brand consistently exciting is the question that I would ask and prevent it from sinking into the background. Then you have to have a reliable means and process of continuing to push the boundaries. I don't think the idea is not just randomness for randomness sake. It's randomness to get a clue of, of what's going to work and what's going to work better, at which point how can the brand take a stance on that particular thing. So it's not there to suggest that you need to be some sort of ongoing chaos machine just pumping out lots of different messages. It's really to say what are interesting ways that people in our category are starting to think about value. So in the case of, again, just to reference $1 chips, maybe it's less about the price point. And so we no longer need to be having this conversation around price point. We need to be having a conversation about the feeling of a special deal. So in the case of KFC, we've built a whole brand platform. I'm not sure if you've seen it on shut up and take my money. It's just the feeling that you get when an offer is so special and it has very little to do with the price point. And again, you can see how that kind of comes from the an understanding of the way that value worked and the clue that we got through doing our little R&D research. I have one more question for you, Dane, because you're, you're a behavioral strategist, but you also work very closely with the creative people in the creative department. So how do you, as a behavioral strategist, inspire creative thinking within the agency? Could you share some of your pers favorite personal examples of how you've helped uplift creativity with behavioral science? 
Yeah, look, I've, I think one of the things which makes behavioral science so exciting is that is not really the academic parts of it. It's not the way that it provides more information. It's the way that it provides a kind of counterintuitive and exciting flip on, on sort of tenets which we hold to be true. So in the case of, let's say, again, working on KFC, thinking about how we might increase things like perceptions of quality of the food. Typically, the traditional response would always be around talking about the process would be talking about things like, you know, it's made fresh, not frozen. But what behavioral science allows us to do is, is really start to find the less conventional approaches. And so understanding that things like having to wait around for a while actually gives you more comfort in the fact that there are more quality processes going on behind the scenes. So all of a sudden, I'm able to sit with a creative team and tell them something which on the surface sounds a little bit crazy. And I think creatives love a little bit of crazy, but it's backed by science. And so I think Part of the challenge is finding what are those counterintuitive flips or, or sort of opportunities which only present themselves through an understanding of behavioral science. But it's also just about bringing people on board and getting them excited about what behavioral science is and what it could do to our industry. So I'm sure you've probably had a, a similar experience of, you know, how do you get people on board with the vision of behavioral science and where does it fit in? You know, we don't want to just be seen as the ugly step-sibling who sits over in the corner and does research reports and literature reviews. It's all about how does it make the work better and more interesting. And I think as soon as you start to show those opportunities and just how brave and exciting you can, you can make the work, I think creatives really get on board with, and, and you know, I have lots of calls during the day with just proactive creative ideas, which spring up through a conversation, which we've had over the different weeks, specifically about different nudges, different cognitive heuristics, biases. So I think there's a bit of a journey to get people on board, but once, once they see the magic in it, it's kind of hard to unsee it. That's, that's great, Dane. And thank you so much for sharing that. Well, we're at the end of our po podcast right now, but would there be any last things or last words that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, look, just as a wrap up on, on value, because I think it's easy to listen to somebody rattle on about why value is something and isn't another thing. And then kind of it's just easy to slip back into treating value the same way. I think a good little heuristic for, for the way of thinking about value is that if you have a challenge which has to do with value, how can you squeeze more out of it by treating it less like it's just a number and more like it's a, a little story that you have to get people on board with? How can you give people a sense internally of how they're getting a good deal rather than just relying on the facts of, you know, it's 5% cheaper or it's 10% more bonus features included. What's that story that people can tell themselves that makes them feel better about the value that they're getting and test, test lots of different things. Wow. That's great, uh, Dane. You know, uh, look for the value, not just in the, you know, objective price, but look for it in the story that you're telling and that the story that's meaningful for people. So thank you so much again, Dane, for being part of the show today. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me. Good to speak to you. Thank you again to, to Dane for joining us this evening. If you'd like listening to the show today, please make sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for new episodes wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're at it, please rate the show and leave a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Paolo Mercado, and this has been Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting bringing you behavioral insights that improve business and lives.